Amen. You may be seated. How many of you feel that you're on your way to revival? Already, right? Right to worship God. Sweet, sweet spirit in this place. I was sitting over here thinking, you know, just a word of testimony about this place, this particular place. There is that sweet, sweet spirit in this place because since it was opened up 13 years ago, there has been no other spirit allowed in. Nothing else has happened in this room except the worship of God. It's a place for that purpose and that purpose alone. And there's a spirit here that lingers. And when we enter the doors, we pick it up all over again. I trust you feel a bit of revival in your heart this morning already. Heavenly Father, bless us now as we open your word. It's a special word today. It's a word that, that we especially want you to use to just draw us into the presence of Jesus Christ, with whom we will commune in just a few moments. So ready us, prepare us, thrill us, engage us, teach us, encourage us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, our message concluded with the following revelation-generated hope. You know, we've been looking for hope in this book of Revelation, and every week we try to find the hope that is generated by the revelation that's been revealed. Here was the hope that last week's revelation generated for us. And we said it this way. God does not overlook or ignore or forget about the evilness in this world. Our Heavenly Father does possess full and complete knowledge and will one day express full and complete judgment upon sinful mankind. He will vindicate his own. And when he does, it will be glorious in their eyes. That's the great hope that can be generated by the actions of God in judgment upon this fallen, sin-filled world. Last week, in working our way toward that hope, our attention was fixed upon what John called the seven bowls of God's wrath. And they were poured out upon this earth one by one by one to all seven had wreaked their havoc, as it were, upon the fallen men and women who still remain on this earth as judgment fell. However, those bowls were only one aspect of God's final judgment upon sinful mankind. It comes in stages. The seven bowls were poured out upon the world generally, upon every living human being still there. That was chapter 16. Chapter 17 focuses upon God's judgment on an adulterous woman sitting on a monstrous beast. This is a very specific judgment. And John says, I saw this vision. Now, you can just imagine, I, I thought about asking Linda to search out the most adulterous-looking woman she could find. But then I thought, what, what would such a person look like? 
Now, what would the monstrous beast look like? So we'll just have to picture it in our own mind. John says he saw a woman that he identified as an adulterous woman. The old King James uses another word there. An adulterous woman sitting on a monstrous beast. And the Bible says in John or in Revelation 17 that this woman will be responsible for the deaths of many believers, of many saints. In keeping with depictions and descriptions that we might find in the Old Testament, a woman like this is generally considered to be symbolic of all the false religions of men. Men, God says, commit spiritual adultery when they get involved with her, following after false teachings, following after the gods of the nations. Spiritual adultery. Over the years, this woman has worn many titles, has borne many names, and she certainly has a presence in our world today. John identified her at the end of his statement as the great city, the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. And there he's kind of picturing all of this evilness concentrated in one place, a place of power, a place of control, a centralized false religion, if you will. Here's how the scripture announces her demise. Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, John says, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. So what true and just judgment has God just made? The writer goes on to say, and the voice from heaven says, He, that is our God, he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! See, judgment brought by a holy God is a glorious thing for his people to see. This is not human fleshly anger, revenge. This is something divine. This is something that when you see it, you're as amazed by it as if you had watched the creation of the world. This is the almighty God at work and doing things that absolutely must be done, should be done, and are glorious to actually see done. That's the woman, a very specific judgment. Chapter 18 then focuses upon God's judgment on Babylon the Great. The name is there, the title's there. It's a depiction, as you read through the chapter, you would say it's a depiction of the world's economic system. Babylon here is characterized as the greatest city in the world, the premier center of commerce and financial activity. John probably thought it had to be Rome. Rome was the city in John's day in the first century, the capital of the Roman Empire. Everything went through Rome. Everything John describes here would be true of the city of Rome. But Rome has long since dropped out of that role. Some over the years have identified it with the passing of time with the city of London. 
There was a time when London was the financial center of the entire world. Many today would identify it as New York City. Or perhaps this great Babylon, perhaps the entire United States as that city set on a hill. The point is, God's judgment will fall on the idolatrous woman and will fall upon that great city or state, Babylon itself. And from the revelation of these judgments can be generated that same hope that we identified last week coming from the bowls of wrath. And here we'll read it again. God does not overlook or ignore or forget about the evilness in this world. Our Heavenly Father does possess full and complete knowledge and will one day express full and complete judgment upon sinful mankind. He does vindicate his own. And when he does, it will be glorious in their eyes. Now the point is this. Though at times it might appear that sinful men are getting away with something, how many of you know somebody in your life right now that's getting away with something? And you kind of feel like they shouldn't, right? They're just getting away with it. You're playing by the rules and they're not. See, sometimes it appears that sinful men are getting away with something that their evil deeds are going unnoticed or are being quickly forgotten. According to God's word, we declare they are not. Every page of every Bible that was thrown into the bonfire that raged in Portland, Oregon just a few nights ago will be avenged by the author of that book himself. Think not. Think not that man's rantings against God will be erased from God's tally sheet. God will eventually bring judgment upon all evil doers. But as we saw last week, when judgment falls, the people of the world do not repent. Not the people of that day. When the age of grace is ended, when the voice from heaven says, it's done, no more delay, that means judgment has come. And when judgment comes, just like when the door of the ark was shut, grace is gone. And so during that time, when judgment falls, we see in the book of Revelation, the people of the world do not repent. Rather, they will directly curse God, even curse him more, and they hate him. Hate him for his judgments. Hate him for his standards. Hate him for his commandments. The world, we read on in Revelation, the world will mourn its losses, and the people of the world, though, will rise up from their mourning to challenge the Almighty himself. We'll see in a few weeks there's coming a day where Satan will gather all the remaining living people on earth, gather them together to make their opposition to God himself. And that armed rebellion, that armed rebellion of the sinful, willful, 
rebellious people on earth in earth's last days. That rebellion will open the door to what we're calling today hope generating revelation number 20. So here's the new revelation. It's the revelation of the coming king. Chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. Let me read. John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges, and he makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dripped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's our revelation. Through John that we've been given today, the revelation of the coming King upon this earth. Now, just two quick observations. Let's just review and rejoice in all these things that are said about the coming king. They can, we can categorize them just in, in two categories. Number one, consider with me the character. A lot is said about him. What kind of fellow is he? The character of the coming king. Number one, John says he is faithful and true. Verse 11. You see, he is the one who does not forget either his promises or mankind's perversions. He does not scam the world. His pronouncements cannot be denied or his judgments avoided. He is faithful and true. Secondly, John says his eyes are like blazing fire. This is the exalted Lord Jesus that John the Apostle saw in chapter 1. Remember when John was first caught up to heaven, first had his, his vision there, and he saw the exalted, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ? Remember what John said when he saw him? He said, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. I fell at his feet as though I were dead. And in that passage, John says, and his eyes were like blazing fire. This is the Lord Jesus coming. This is the Son of God. This is the, the exalted one, the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is not the meek, the meek and mild Savior who lowered himself so far down that human beings think they might even be superior to him. Certainly some did in the days that he walked on the earth. Not this man. This is the exalted Son of God in all his glory that John the Apostle was struck by when he saw him, completely overwhelmed with his glory and majesty. John says he wears many crowns and is highly honored. At this point, I would say all faithful and fruitful members of Christ's church have had their opportunity following the rapture 
to lay their crowns at Christ's feet. Scripture says that'll happen. Those who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ, those who have gained things that God can commend them for, there are crowns, there are rewards, there are tangible evidences of, of their faithfulness. We put the Apostle Paul right up there at the top. And the scripture says, and we will cast our crowns at his feet, recognizing his greater worthiness to wear them than ours. And so here he comes. Here he comes representing all of them who have previously been caught up to heaven and who are watching from heaven this, this outpouring of God's final judgment. He comes representing all of them, highly honored by all of them. Next thing says he is dressed in a robe that is dipped in blood. The Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, no acceptable payment for sin. This King of kings and Lord of lords forever bears evidence of his own great sacrifice for those who are his. His robe has been dipped in blood that never can we forget. Never can we forget, even when we see him with blazing eyes, the glory of his majesty, there's the, the edge of his robe dipped in blood that says this one lowered himself down to take our place, to take our place. More awesome will that thought be to us on that day than it is on this day. And then John says, he is the very word of God, verse 13. See, not only in the beginning, but here near the very ending of Earth's time, it is announced that he, the Son of God, is the word of God. John had previously written, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He is the very word of God. He is the living embodiment of that eternal word which cannot be challenged or altered. And then verse 16, he of course is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Here is his ultimate designation. He is the father's great champion. He is the one of whom the great kings of Israel were forerunners. All things in heaven, in the entire universe, and on earth are under his jurisdiction. He is king. And all will acknowledge him as such on that day. So this is the character. This is the nature of the one who will come to quell earth's final rebellion. This is the one whom we see acting on our behalf as the born-again children of God. This is the one whose name we bear and whose call we heed. And so take in this morning all that he is, all that he is. And then consider not only the character of the coming king, but just quickly here, the conduct of the coming king. John tells us a lot of things that he will do. One, he judges the world, verse 11. No more will man's sinful smugness rule the dead. Just think about that. 
No longer will man's sinful smugness rule the day. No more will the judgments of man hold sway on this earth. He will judge righteously and absolutely. No appeal will be heard. No excuse accepted. Judgment time has come. Secondly, John says he makes war on the world. His attitude will be, excuse me for putting it this way, but it just struck me this way. His attitude will be, you wanted to mess with me? And with my people? Well, here I am. Here I am. Let's get it on. John says he will make war with the world. He leads the armies of heaven. It says as he was coming, John says, and behind him were the armies, plural, of heaven, all riding white horses and, and so forth, verse 14. And, and I thought, what a sight that will be. The armies of heaven in full battle array. Now, I believe these are the angelic host. These are not you and me having put on armor. These are the armies of heaven. These are the celestial beings. These are those who have waited for this moment in time to come as the entourage of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to judge sin and the devil and all who rebel with no repentance against God. They have waited for this moment. And they come like, like Elijah's servant of old when the city of Dothan was surrounded by the enemy and Elisha says, Lord, just open his eyes and his eyes were opened and surrounding those who surrounded them were all the fiery hosts of heaven. And there are more with us than there are against us. These are the ones that come following the Lord Jesus. I'll tell you, the eyes of the world will be opened and they will see just how vastly outnumbered and outgunned they are. And so therefore, verse 15 says, he will strike down the nations. This is not a long, drawn-out warfare. He will strike down the nations. Not one casualty will fall on the side of the king, while nearly all those who oppose him will be destroyed. Mankind is ill-prepared to take on the force of the heavenly hosts under the command of the coming king. They will be struck down. And then verse 15 also says, he will rule them. That is, those who survive the onslaught. And there will be some who survive. There will be some that Satan hasn't gathered together into that final assembly. And those who remain on the earth, he will rule over them. He will establish a kingdom on this earth. John will tell us in just a couple of weeks, maybe even next week, this kingdom will be a thousand years long on this earth under the rulership of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he will rule them, it says, with an iron scepter. That means it's his way or the highway. There's no more arguing with God. There's no more saying, well, this is what God says, but here's what I think. No, in that day, Jesus Christ is on the throne. Jesus Christ sets the rules. Jesus Christ is the one who, who brings all people into account during that long period of time. He is the absolute ruler 
Son of God. So be no deviation from the commands of God. God's will, God's way will be the rule of the day. Now, the, the good part is, if people, as they come into that kingdom, mankind will live under the best conditions this world has known since the Garden of Eden itself. This will be a, a rulership that, that has, uh, has goodness, has beauty, has perfection, where sin has pretty much been eliminated altogether for a period of time. It'll seem like heaven on earth. And you might say, who would want to argue with the king? This is a good and perfect life. It's not heaven, though. It's a kingdom still on a God-cursed earth. And the story isn't over with the establishment of the kingdom. We'll see that in another week or so. But while Jesus Christ rules, this earth will be nearly a paradise once again. All that had been destroyed will be rebuilt, and people will thrive as human beings. He will rule them. He will be the ruler. Last thing is, verse 15, he will complete the expression of God's wrath. It says, he will trample out the vintage and the winepress of God's wrath. In the process of judgment, there will be great destruction before the kingdom is established. And surely, the Spirit of God would lift our eyes this morning to the end of all time, and he would want to, whenever we hear the words, of this familiar Civil War testimony. Somebody in the cause of that war, in the cause of the freedom that it was seeking to bring for, for all citizens, all people in this country, somebody testified these words. He says, my eyes, my eyes have caught a vision, my eyes have seen something. And here's what he said, my eyes have seen the glory. Those on earth in those final days, they will testify to this. We who watch from heaven, born again believers in Jesus Christ, we will testify to this. These words were taken right from the scripture, I believe, and applied to an earthly situation, but they're going to come to their fullest <coughs> expression when Jesus Christ carries them out. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. That's why he's come. He's come to just bring the final outpouring of God's wrath upon sin to just let it break forth, break forth. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. John says out of his mouth came a sharp sword. He's loosed the lightning, the effect of that terrible swift sword. His truth, his judgment is 
marching on. Those days are yet to come. Those days may be soon to come, but when they come, the day of grace is past. The day of forgiveness is over, and men will be con con confirmed in their unrighteousness, and they will experience the judgment of God, particularly those who have just made a lifetime of cursing God and opposing God and leading people away from the truths of God. And when the king comes, it's when the father has said, now you go. Now is the time. And the full judgment is poured out. I tell you, take in this morning, not only all that he is, but take in this morning all that he does. In these final days, he will bring the judgment. But even as he brings the judgment, he'll be wearing a robe that has been dipped in his own blood, which provides an escape. In this day of grace, before judgment falls, the very blood of Christ provides you and me, all of us, an escape from the very judgment we're reading. And forever will this blazing-eyed crown king of kings wear the robe, dipped in blood, saying, I died. I died for you. I died for those who will receive and confess and repent. If you've not done that, man, do it. Do it. Realize that he died to pay the price of sin, he took upon himself the judgment of God that even he himself one day will bring to bear in this world. His robe bears evidence of his great sacrifice. Final thought says this, what hope it brings to know that history's suffering servant will one day serve as earth's conquering king. Let's bow before him now. Amen. Oh, our Heavenly Father, our mind is boggled by the scope of these things. We suspect that our lifespan will be up before these things take place. How many thousands of believers, how many generations have read these words in Revelation and, and wondered and pondered who might this woman be? Who is the Babylon? Who are the ones that finally are so intransient that, that God says, no more delay. Judgment falls. Father, we praise you that, is, that we live not in those final days, but we live in a day where the grace of God is still being preached where the love of God is still being explained and where the invitation for salvation is still being given. Oh, Father, may there, if there's anyone in this room who's not received that invitation of Jesus, come unto me. Come unto me. And receive his forgiveness and his love and the new life that he gives through his spirit. 
may they do so right now. But Father, we praise you that you are a God who rights all wrongs. You are a God who vindicates your own as well as vindicating yourself. And we praise you for your, your justice and your truth. And yes, even your judgment. And we ask for your continued blessing upon us and upon this congregation. Now pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.